And first, a quick word from our podcast sponsor. FactSet delivers superior data, analytics, and flexible technology to help more than 170,000 users see and seize opportunities sooner. For over 40 years, we have given investment professionals the edge to outperform with informed insights, workflow solutions across the portfolio lifecycle, and industry-leading support from dedicated specialists. Through market changes and technological progress, we're proud to have been recognized with multiple awards for our analytical and data-driven solutions, while staying connected to our clients and each other. Learn more at www.factset.com. Hey, everybody, and welcome to The Sustainability Story. I'm Matt Orsag with CFA Institute, and our guest today is John Hepner, Head of U.S. Stewardship and Sustainable Investments, Elgin America. Hey, John, good to see you again. Thanks for having me, Matt. All right, I could walk through your, your lengthy bio, but I, 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 in the beginning I did, and I got tired of reading those. So I asked people to you know, tell us a little bit about themselves because it's always better to let somebody else tell their own story, and then we'll get into you know, why you're here and what you want to talk about. So tell us a little about how you got here uh, to where you are now. Sure, thanks, Matt. Um, so I've been squarely and fully dedicated to ESG for my full 15-year career, and I've been really fortunate to study this issue from different vantage points. Uh, so started my career at Cambridge Associates right when the idea of ESG was very novel. Uh, I was fortunate to go look and try to find all the different asset managers that were doing ESG and whatever terminology it was. And actually, it wasn't even such a popular idea at that point. Um, all the way through to product development, a few different asset managers. And frankly, um, uh, that was really interesting because this is right as, um, you know, in, in the U.S., uh, many people jam ESG into the index product development. Uh, that's where I, I spent a few years at Northern Trust. Uh, I spent six years as an entrepreneur um, building a new ESG data firm. And when, when you're in the throes of ESG, you realize that data is very, uh, not nearly as clean as we like to purport it to be. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I tried to solve that. And that wasn't, uh, it actually wasn't a success. Unfortunately, I didn't get gobbled up by MSCI. I was um, going to say, how'd that go? <laughs> well, so, so it was a great, it was an awesome learning experience. Um, I learned that corporates were more interested in buying ESG data than investors. Mm -hmm. um, and actually, if you have really hard to understand ESG data, it's really hard to sell. Um, but that was a great learning experience because data really does underpin this whole space. And it frankly kind of stumbled into the stewardship side of ESG at a really lucky moment because I do think this cool confluence of everyone is uh, investing in index and index importance in the markets growing uh, and, and then stewardship by extension at index managers in particular is a really, really interesting spot to be. So uh, for the past three and a half years, I've been at uh, LGM America um, leading stewardship. So in case people don't, we always throw out acronyms all over the place in this podcast, but Le legal general investment management is what LGM stands for. Yep. And in just in case the, the one liner on them uh, for, for the U.S. audience in particular, it's not a household name by any means, but they're the largest institutional asset manager in the U.K. So it's kind of a household name in the U.K., but in the U.S., most people think we're a legal firm. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. A couple of weeks ago, I had uh, our friend Ben Yo on the podcast, and he turned the tables on me on my next question. And so I'm going to invite you to do the same. Uh, I asked my guests, you know, is there one number or one fact? It doesn't have to be one. It can be a couple. 
uh, that kind of help frame this conversation. You know, we're, we're talking about stewardship today and engagement in that world. And we haven't really talked about that much on the podcast yet, which is one of the reasons I want to have you on. But feel free to turn those facts uh, against me, those facts and numbers against me. And we can have a little quiz if you want and ask me uh, how, how, how informed or uninformed I am about, uh, about these numbers. So, so have at it. Okay, I've got one. I got one for you. And I also think it's a very symbolic of the, the current state of the industry. Yep. So we're in the midst of uh, proxy voting season. Right. And everyone that really understands proxies likes studying edge cases. So these are new issues that are defining where the industry is headed. Uh, and it's already been covered at, at quite some detail that both uh, social and environmental uh, proposals are at record numbers last year, and it looks to be record numbers this year. Right. So there were three proposals that that caught my attention uh, last week. One, I maybe it was last week or the week before. So one was at Citigroup, uh, one was at Wells Fargo, and one was at Bank of America. All three shareholder proposals were calling for these various banks to uh, produce a report or, or, or compel the board to compel management to produce a report to put uh, these banks' lending practices in line with net zero uh, ambitions, according to the IEA. Um, and so the question is, all three of these banks have signed up to join net zero various financing initiatives. Uh, what level of support did these three proposals get? Any, any guesses? Oh, see, I used to be in this world so much more, and I would know, and I have not read this. Here, I, I could cleverly edit the podcast, go look on my phone and then give you the answer, but I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. So you're asking kind of for an average of, you know, what's the neighborhood investor support. I'm going to say, I'm going to give you a range, but it's going to be a tight range. So I think, I think that's not a too bad of a cheat, but I'm going to say 25 to 30%. So I think you're saying of who would support this. So yes, that that's actually not so bad. So there was, I, uh, about somewhere between 12. So it was, uh, I was thinking about it from the against side. So oh, no, I, I'm at four. Yes, I'm at four. four. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So yeah. four. So you're, so we're in the right ballpark. Yeah. So for uh, Citigroup, it was 86 against. For Wells mm-hmm. Fargo, it was so 80, 14. 83 yeah. against. For Bank right. of America, it was 89 against. So between, between 10 and 20 for all of them. 10 and 20. And, and the punchline for me, uh, and kind of thinking about where the state of the industry is, is Legal and general supported all three of these. So we were supportive of the proponent, the shareholder proponent. We view this as a, you know, either you are genuinely believe scientists that there is a catastrophic challenge coming and that it is quite reasonable if banks have signed up to net zero commitments to then start to institute policies. And, and so to me, it's a really interesting number, right? So yeah. uh, that means many of our, uh, many of our biggest peers uh, probably did not support this resolution. And, and, and even ISS benchmark policy didn't support it either. And I, I, the, a quick, a quick, just, yeah. sorry to interrupt, but a quick question is how long is that, is, is this a repeat proposal or is this the first time for the, for these proposals? I, I would need to check um, it definitely was a proposal last year at U.S. banks. I, I don't recall right off the bat whether these three banks, I know J.P. Morgan received it last year, and, and I think their vote is, is imminently, maybe this week or next week. Yeah. But I, I don't know if these are repeats, so I'll have to check that for you. Um, but what, this is, what, what does this really mean? What's the kind of interesting takeaway from this is 
the whole industry, the stewardship professional industry is grappling with what's enough, right? So that the typical response, and of course, in ISS's um, kind of dialogue, it would say, you know, each of these banks is doing quite a lot. And and now where everyone needs to roll up their sleeves and basically go line by line and say, well, is it to the letter of the law (laughs) of how, of what the IEA's recommend recommendations were when it says, you know, new and existing, is it, is it not financing any new expansion or is it just current programs? And so that's just that, that, that to me, this number is really, really symbolic of the state of the market. And, um, and I think I suspect these change quite quickly. So if I were to guess what happens in three years, um, I don't think those not, I think it would be a quite a different picture in three years. That's, that's my suspicion. No, I agree. And that was, that's what was behind my question, you know, cause I've seen, you know, we both seen, uh, you know, votes on executive compensation and voting for, you know, directors on the board and proxy access and all these wonderful things took years to kind of build momentum. And I would imagine it would be the same where maybe I'm, you know, my guess was two years ahead or three years ahead or whatever it may be. And I think, and we've talked about this on the podcast with other guests is, you know, we're, we're simple, we're we're simple beings as humans. We're going to try to do the minimum we can to get the approval we need. And I think that's kind of where we are in a lot of these cases. There's a lot of greenwashing going on, intentional and unintentional. Some of it's, you know, we'll give people the benefit of the doubt. Some of it's that we want to do the right thing. We're not sure how to do that yet. We're kind of learning. And so, you know, what's going on with the SEC standards and the ISSB standards in Europe will help codify some of that disclosure. Um, You know, and I find it interesting that, you know, how many companies that have signed on to net zero goals are lobbying against, you know, the SEC proposal or ISSB proposal. And they could be doing so for legitimate reasons. You know, we can talk about the details of that. And how many are saying we need to hit these net zero goals? And yet they're, you know, they have, I forget, I think Barclays did a report a couple years ago about, you know, the largest financers of coal-fired power plants. And what they were saying for net zero promises didn't always match up with, you know, what they're doing, what's in their books. Uh, and not just in their books in the past, but what they're booking for the next five years or, or and more. So I think... The more this, you know, over the next five years, I agree with you, we're going to see these numbers increase and there'll be more scrutiny on these companies and more scrutiny on us as investors to say, well, okay, you know, at you at LGM or where, or, you know, other folks, what are you doing about this issue, whether it's climate or biodiversity or whatever the issue is, or whether it's E issue or an S issue or G issue, um, you know, we get the same pressures from ultimately uh, the people who we run the money for. These issues are not going away. You know, I saw a story this morning. You know, we're, we're speaking in the early early May. I saw this a story this morning where uh, we're there's a 50-50 chance that we are going to hit 1.5 degrees Celsius in the next five years, and that I think it was 2015. It was either 2010 or 2015. This percentage chance was zero, uh, and now seven years later, it's a 50-50 chance. So. Those those things will concentrate the mind over over the over over in the next couple of years, I believe. And and that's why I do believe it's different than past proxy voting signaling, where okay, if we want to improve overboarding or you know tenure on a board, right? 
as a whole sig- market back signal, fine. Right. But there's no timeline where it's gonna where something snaps, right? Whereas right. with climate risk, if you don't act, you know, perhaps the risk gets worse. So yeah. that that would be my view. So it's a, so anyway. So I think uh, we'll we'll see what happens. But anyways, th- those numbers I think are very symbolic of of the state of the market right now. Great. That's a good transition to kind of the next. The next broad kind of level setting uh, for this topic is you know, where in your in your estimation, because you've, you've been at this for quite a while, where have we been, where are we now and where are we going uh, as far as, you know, stewardship goes, engagement goes from your point of view on ESG? So, yeah, no, I love I love this question and I'm going to keep it focused on engagement and stewardship, not the broader ESG, because you can just it's it's unwieldy. Yeah. So in stewardship and engagement, the past was sleepy, the current is confused, and the future is either transparent or highly engaged. So let me kind of walk through each of those. Sure. So the past was sleepy. What does that mean? Proxy voting, engaging with companies uh, was definitely a back office activity. Oh, yeah. There was a handful of NGOs that uh, facilitated various escalation. Um, and it was, frankly, an afterthought. And I think across the board, with one exception and kind of an interesting exception, and that is activists, traditional traditional activists, which are absolutely, you know, I think at the forefront of stewardship trends, they just do it for very targeted financial, historically for very financial reasons. But a lot of their tools is what I think the broader engagement stewardship movement is learning from. Okay, so that was the past. So current, we're in this confused state. So what is what do I mean by confused? Well, first off, there is um, a huge question of how consistent does your proxy voting, your engagement, and then maybe your investments and how you integrate with your investments need to be. How consistent do your positions uh, as a firm need to be? Do you want to, uh, is it okay if one division has different views than other, or active is different than passive, or one portfolio management team is different than the other? So consistency is a huge question. The other big confusion is, do we actually have influence or not? You know, everyone loves pointing to the engine number one example because it's a pretty profound example of, yes, that that small group, engine number one, ended up having tremendous influence through their stewardship activities, both, you know, so so the question of influence is, is a big, you know, existential question for everyone in stewardship. Is like, does it matter when I have the next call with management team and try to say this is important, but I'm not really going to, if I'm in an index manager, I'm not going to buy or sell your stock. You know, why is that really an important exchange of information? Well, turns out index investors definitely swing at the margin every vote. So that is, that influence is really a question. And then the big confusion is, which is super exciting, is should it be customized? And what are the limits, right? We're very aware that there's a, a growing interest of our underlying investors to have a bigger say on proxy votes or on how we engage. That clearly is, is, if I had to guess on a pendulum, the amount of influence that large index managers, it has to be about at the highest it's going to be. It, it can't get much higher. So how is that going to change is going to be very exciting. Uh, so we're at this confused state. It's unclear, is it, is, it a, is it a competitive advantage or not to be a really good steward or not? Is it really value added? Is it is it helping you know, 
is it does it create the real value for your underlying clients that everyone's pitching? A lot of confusion. So then I think we're going to move into this place of, of transparency. And transparency is going to be very messy. It's transparent, but it's going to be messy. And that means back to I mentioned that I, I took a detour and, and went into the data business. I'm convinced that every engagement I have will eventually be completely transparent to my underlying investors if they're interested in going and reading my meeting notes. Mm-hmm. I don't know what that's going to look like, but that's the the future. And play play that out completely. <clears throat> that means corporate clients of every big asset manager will really have a really clear view of how that asset manager thinks about them from an ESG perspective. That means that they're they're that inconsistency that I mentioned that I think I see in the market will will get smoked out. Yeah. And so how much it really matters, I don't know, but at least it's I'm positive that transparency is just a one-way door on this. That's that's interesting you bring that up because it makes me think back to the days, you know, I I've, I've been in this world unfortunately for myself uh, for 20 something years and you've been in, you know, just a little bit less than that. And remembering the reports of, you know, trying to get information on what firms, whether it's you guys or Fidelity or Vanguard or whomever, what their votes were, um, what their engagement policies were, and then details about the engagements. No, you never got that stuff. Uh, but now you are more. Uh, and, I'm, and what we're going to talk about next is I wanted to bring up uh, y- y'all's uh, ESG impact report that you guys put out. And that's a, and that's a great lens into, for investors into how, kind of how, the, how the sausage is made, so to speak, how this is done. Uh, so transitioning to that, can we talk a little bit about that report and a little about, about this process you know, for, for, for the un, uninitiated and, and how that is going and how that uh, has gone for legal in general? Yeah, sure. Thanks. And I'll, I'll frame it both that report, but then also your, your broader question, which is just, you know, what does that transparency right. feel like? Good. So like the whole industry, uh, we created a nice capstone report on our practically, what was our, the stewardship activities from the last calendar year? And it's our 11th annual report and it details the full scope of corporate engagements, regulatory engagements, collaborative engagements, what are called significant votes, any our new policy enhancements. And it and it actually details out, you know, the numbers, okay, there were, you know, 500 or odd direct individual engagements, how do they break down by region? What were our biggest learnings? Where are we having success? Where are we having failure? So this report was um, aligned with the new requirements in the UK. You actually, in the, for, the, for the UK government, for the, I think it's the Stewardship Code or, or it's the FRC, you actually have to produce these right. engagement reports now. Right. So there's, it, this is, this, it's kind of also regulatory driven. Right. So what are the learnings when you, when you crack this report open, you stop and you look? We as an asset manager are trying novel approaches to stewardship. What does that mean? We filed our first handful of shareholder of proposals uh, in the U.S. market where we are the lead filers, and I'll give you some examples of what that looked like. But just at a high level, we are we created new partnerships. Uh, we announced a partnership with the Environmental Defense Fund, kind of a leading authority on science-based practical observations and, and methane um, data measurement. And it, let me just start with those two. So, so what were those resolutions? So, um, we we featured an interesting resolution we filed at Moderna, where we are. Uh, we're really concerned with 
how the company took U.S. taxpayer money, which in theory should change the equation of how you set pricing, and then essentially rolled out a very successful vaccine, but didn't necessarily disclose how they priced it, which our view was that this really is a chain. There was a fundamental change that happened when the U.S. taxpayer de-risked Moderna. Yeah. So in this situation, it's an example of us taking a kind of a very specific issue, thinking hard, does it fit a broader theme we're really interested in, which is taxpayers, you know, offset de-risking companies. What should we learn about this? Called for a very specific report. And in this situation, um, Moderna met us, uh, issued a pretty thoughtful report you know, it didn't go necessarily as exactly as far as we wanted, but but really some uh, made some big advances on, on being transparent of how that pricing worked. Um, so that was an interesting example of us using a tool that obviously a lot of very specialized ESG managers have used for a long time. But I would argue very few mainstream asset managers actively participate in the shareholder proposal process. Obviously, we're voting, but actually creating new shareholder proposals. We uh, issued another shareholder proposal calling for the separation of chairman and CEO uh, at Eli Lilly. I mentioned the EDF partnership. So and, and, and we go through literally a host of what are the broadest themes for us. Um, we're really interested in um, this year, we'll be looking very closely at remuneration in the wake of COVID and how, how companies are responding uh, to kind of year over year for, um, increases on, on, from, from CEO perspective. Yeah. So, anyways, so, so that's, our, that's our annual report. I wanted to get to, back to your core question, which is the direction of transparency and what does that look like? So I'll give you kind of three examples that are uh, important to us. So first is... Uh, within 24 hours of all of our proxy votes, we publish our rationale and how we voted uh, on a publicly available website. I believe that's best in class in the market. Um, so that's something that's super important to us. We have exhaustive policies on each in stewardship or kind of um, each gover corporate governance issue where we've taken a principled view. We put that in the public domain and are kind of very actively transparent about that all the way to the point where for every, uh, I think it's maybe 10,000 public securities, we have an ESG score, kind of our house ESG score. It is not attempting to predict, is that a material ESG issue for the company? What it's trying to say is we have minimum standards for disclosure, for you know board tenure, for board structure, for policies related to right to organize that we want to put in the public domain so companies are not confused of what are our minimum standards. Um, so anyways, those are just examples of us really trying to be as transparent as possible. Uh, and I definitely just think that's the direction of travel. Yeah, no, I agree. And I, for our listeners out there, you know, hopefully they're not in the world we're in where, where they're reading all these proxies and, and, and uh, up to date on what you know, their fund, their mutual fund company is, is doing. Hopefully they have better things to do with their lives. But, but, but if, they, if they're interested, I want to say you guys are, are one of the best at doing it. So they can, they can really kind of see what the bar should be and what the standards should be by looking at what LGM, LGM is doing. And I invite them to you know, look up the LGM ESG impact report and other stuff you guys have done. Uh, but moving on to you know, the next thing we want to talk about is it's, it's, it's been interesting in this world over the past you know, 20 years I've been in it. You've seen a lot of these issues slowly boil up. Uh, what are some of the emerging issues, uh, you know, beyond climate that you see that, you know, might just be getting a couple proposals now, uh, you know, single digit support uh, from, from investors 
Uh, but what are some of the emerging issues you see that we should be on the lookout for? Sure. You know, I think if many people have said, you know, the S in ESG is definitely overlooked, and I would agree with that. Um, let's focus specifically on the U.S. because that's where I kind of my main purview is. Right. You're probably aware of a, a really thoughtful group, the Human Capital Management Coalition, mm -hmm. which has rallied, put a lot of pressure on the SEC to push for human capital disclosures. But it goes beyond you know, very specific metrics of diversity and total number of workers and turnover. I see this area of workers' rights in the U.S. market as being red hot. Um, mm. Nothing makes it more exciting than, you know, union votes at Amazon and Starbucks, which makes it be a front page issue. Mm. And that is really, really important, right? Uh, whether wherever you fall on the spectrum in terms of just the awareness, right? So, right. you know, because every, every person in the US either shops at Amazon or buys a, a coffee at Starbucks. So it, it's so front of mind that workers are so disgruntled that they've changed, they've challenged corporate status quo. And so to me, forget the exact unionization or not, but just unionization as a as a media or a as, a, as an acknowledgement that that's one way of expressing frustration, uh, I think is a huge signal to investors. Mm -hmm. You know, you mix this with inflation and compensation. And so to, I don't know exactly how it's going to play out yet, but I can tell you that that is going to be a, a red hot issue. I do think some of the simple solutions like as investors having turnover data is incredibly reasonable. <laughs> right. And so I think there, we're going to see some little bits of breakthrough in terms of more systematic data coverage. For sure, it's a topic that's going to be much more important for us in all of our engagements is just how are you staffing? Where are your biggest staffing risks? Right. But anyway, so to me, that's, but I, I can't say that it's necessarily manifested in really successful shareholder proposals yet. Uh, I think, you know, that's, there's a little bit of disconnect between how important the issue is and then how do you, how do you use that mechanism of a shareholder proposal to catch the attention of folks? Yeah, well, one of the things I want to mention, uh, uh, because you brought up human capital management is that right now we're speaking in early to mid-May, 2022, the, everyone's attention at the SEC is on the climate proposal they put out, but fast on the heels of that, what we're told is that over the summer or maybe early fall to expect human capital management to be the next thing from the SEC that comes up. And we're going to get, likely, a lot more information than just what we have now, which is you know basically number of employees. Uh, and I would point people to a podcast we did with uh, As You Sow a couple a couple weeks ago, where they <clears throat> the topic we were covering was 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 race data, but it it goes beyond that. They track things like recruitment and retention, and not just what what firms say on that, but their actual policies and crunching the numbers. So this can go into dozens of metrics that we as investors want to have so we can make inform, you know, more informed decisions. So I think, yeah, I agree. Human capital management is is something to look out for. Uh, anything else? Yeah, I was going to say there's a few little uh, offshoot issues that I would, would flag that have been important to us this season. We did participate in an investor sign-on related to sick pay. It's obviously a substream of this idea of human capital, but right. I do think these kind of obvious, you know, certain industries where they don't have 
what you would be quite reasonable standards for sick pay policies right. in the midst of a extended pandemic is um, quite outrageous. And on a global basis, our, when, I, when we talk to our global colleagues and say we're going to focus on sick pay, they can't even believe it, um, right. that that's actually an issue in the U.S. But uh, I do think that's one that I would flag. Um, there's two other non-direct human capital, or at least one other that I wanted to flag, That's on, or two others that I wanted to flag that's on my mind. So one is we've been pretty vocal around antimicrobial resistance as a potential risk that is being overlooked. And I'll give you yeah. an example. So, uh, and I, I'm definitely not a scientist, so I, I'm more following, you know, trying to follow the literature, but we've had distinct engagements with water utilities, which are apparently a really strategic link in detecting and understanding antimicrobial resistance, which if folks don't know on the line is right when you, you, you put a lot of antibiotics in the system and then eventually the superbug emerges apparently that, you know, is resistant. It learns to, to be resistant to them. Yeah. And so as I've engaged, I cover utilities and as I've engaged with utilities, I've been asking our water utilities, you know, how often do you monitor for this stuff and how, uh, what percentage of your facilities are being monitored? And on a global basis, the numbers are, you know, atrociously low that mm -hmm. this is not really yet been viewed as a as a genuine risk. So uh, that's something that's that's on our mind. It's a, you know a little substream issue. Mm -hmm. And the last one I'll mention is, in full disclosure, I'm a board member of uh, the shareholder commons, but I am quite convinced of this idea that investors, especially stewardship professionals are torn between making what's the best interest of an individual company, but in the broader context of a diversified portfolio. And how mm -hmm. do you make that trade-off? And that is a you know cerebral concept, but it's a pretty obvious one when you dig in, right? Like, would you want a Facebook or a Meta to be highly profitable if it made people, you know, scared of vaccines and, you know, polarized on politicization. So that's a, an interesting kind of new concept that we're studying quite a bit. And I think, um, I think uh, there's some legs to that. I don't know exactly how it's going to manifest, whether it's shareholder. I know there are a bunch of shareholder proposals, but I do think this concept's very real. Uh, if I'm an irregular old investor, you know, I don't want to see one or two company names profit at the behest of my whole portfolio. So um, I do think that's a pretty interesting idea. Yeah, that's interesting. You bring that up. That that makes me think of, and I've just been reading the SEC proposal too long. For my, my colleague and I here have been, you know, going over that for the past two weeks and writing a response to it. But one of the issues that's that's in that when you're talking about you know, the three main ones that are out there are the SEC, the ISSB, International Sustainability Standards Board, and then the European Union just came out with theirs. The EFRAG just came out with with theirs, and with the, they talk about materiality. And it's interesting, this issue of double materiality. And for those who haven't listened to the other podcasts, you know, uh, we talked about this, you know, double materiality is simply, historically, what we've thought about is how does the environment impact the company you're investing in? You know, the example I give is Coca-Cola needs water to make their product. So what you hear about in their discussions and their MDNA and the risks and opportunities is we need water in India or Nigeria or, you know, America or wherever. And what is, you know, how do we get that? Are there any risks around that? 
But the arrow going the other way, materiality is how does Coca-Cola, and I'm not picking on Coca-Cola, every, every company picks, you know, every company impacts the environment around them in some way. And we don't really have good systems and we haven't trained people to think about that as systematically as we have. I'm, I'm here talking from the CFA Institute, you know, where we've trained people for, you know, decades on the, that first arrow. Uh, and we're pretty good at that. And we haven't paid enough attention to that second arrow, not just CFA Institute, I think, you know, our, our profession. And that is going to be more and more of a discussion in, in the coming years. And it's interesting that as of right now, you know, the, that, that second arrow isn't part of the SEC proposal, isn't part of the ISSP proposal, but is part of the European proposal around standards and reporting. And I would imagine that will evolve, you know, like we're having this conversation five years from now, where it will be more kind of table stakes for these discussions about, you know, if I'm an investor, I care about the, that those arrows going both ways because of, you know, things like climate and biodiversity and, and, and natural capital, they're going to be more at the forefront of people's minds. I fully agree. And when you do bring folks in to, to discuss this issue, I think it's always important to focus on incentives and basically our whole industry is built on incentive that does the arrow uh, inward and the incentive, the arrow out is not there. So we got to fix that first. I've probably said it on too many of these podcasts, uh, but you know, we do what we're incentivized to do as, as human beings and, and no industry is any different. And so those incentives, whether it's for the company you're investing in or you as a, as a manager, those arrows, those incentives need to be in the right places to get to the right outcomes. Well, finally, before we get into the homework we're going to give to, to uh, our listeners, what's, you know, what are you seeing as what's going on in the U.S., what's going on internationally, what's going on internationally, some of the differences you see, kind of your crystal ball of where you see this world going, and not just uh, you know, in the U.S., but uh, globally as well? And when you say, just, just so I clarify, and when you say the world going, you're saying related to stewardship engagement? Or yeah, just... related to stewardship engagement, yeah. You can talk about anything you want, but, but yeah, <laughs> related to stewardship engagement. So, you know, I mentioned earlier that future state where it's radically transparent. I know it's an overused term, but I do believe that, you know, any investor is going to have really good understanding if they want to dig how companies are voting, historical voting, they'll probably be able to help override their voting because technology will make that really smooth. Yeah. Um, so, so that's one, one, you know, customization, you know, you know, one more, my crystal ball, you know, one of the holdbacks, which I've been thinking a lot about is when we write, and I think a lot about this when we, we, we you discuss the active ownership report, you know, we say, Hey, we engage with 570 companies and, and we can show lots of fancy stats. I actually wonder a bit if there's going to be a shift towards more tangible, more emotional data. Mm. So let me give you an example. When we talk about bio uh, or we talk about deforestation, I can create a portfolio to you with the latest data on deforestation, which has, and the data is not very good, but I, which has companies that have policies and then companies that have auditors that audit their policies, and then companies that have commitments and have made progress towards their targets, right? And then I can, and you're just losing, you're falling asleep and you're not really sure. 
And then imagine a portfolio where you double click on, you know, villain number one, and you go get a drone image of what it looks like, the clear cutting that happens. Right. And then you send in somebody and you can watch that NGO go meet with the CEO of the company and feel the engagement. I actually think that might be, I don't know if that's like what I think is the right way to go with this industry, but I think that that's going to be a direction where people, people get lost. ESG is a messy acronym that no one really understands. So let me feel it. Let me see it with my own eyes. Uh, I think that's a, that will be, again, I don't necessarily think making this stuff more emotional is the right thing to do, but I think that that's probably what's going to come. And it's going to be really, really, it's going to make, I think it make our lives more interesting um, <laughs> because we're going to be navigating stories. But I think, uh, I do think that's, that's one of the directions that this could go. Yeah, no, I can, I can see that. I can see that. All right. So now, now's the time of the the podcast where everybody, all our audience, is anticipating. You know what what you're going to put on their uh, nightstand. Uh, what homework are you going to give them to read? My, I I can't keep up with with everything that I've been given. I do this every two weeks, and uh, I have most. I've read some of the books, some of the reports, but there's about two thirds where it's something new to me. So I have to go out and buy that and read it. And I'm, I'm, I think I'm still in uh, December of, the, of of what I'm catching up with. But uh, I ask our guests, what are you reading or what do you think people should be reading or listening to or watching to kind of learn more about this topic, learn more about stewardship, engagement, and if they want to be, you know, the, the, the future John Hepners of the world, uh, you know, what they should be digging into? Sure. So I'll go in order of absolutely most relevant to less relevant. I got three for you. So All right. What I am spending every single day reading, uh, which they are not the most exciting, but they are important, is plain vanilla ISS research notes on companies that are problematic. You need a license to go do it, but they're, they are, they, they, ISS gets such a hard time because they're not perfect, but they're, they're, they're do, I think they do a tremendous job and a huge amount of time sensitive in materials, but that's what I'm spending most time reading. Right. In terms of just broader ESG trends, who I think has their finger on the pulse um, better than anyone. You probably know him well. John Hale, uh, the ESG advisor, is his medium, I don't know, way of distributing his information. Yeah. I think he's just got a really, really good sense of where the market is. Obviously, he has the unique access to morning, a pile of Morningstar data and Sustainalytics Now data that he uses really thoughtfully to kind of substantiate his views. But I really think he's, he's uh, if you want one thing to just stay on top of ESG trends, uh, I think that's, that's what I'd read. That's a good one. Taking it further, just so you know, kind of like what I read, what's on my bedstand right now, it is not ESG related. <laughs> good for you. I am part of a, a book club, long-standing book club for the past 10 years, uh, reading great books. And the book that we're reading this month is called Exit West by Moshin Hamid. But the, it's actually more important, forget the book, it's more important the purpose of what I've learned of great books discussions. And basically what, it, what great books discussions teach you is that for most major issues, there's two exactly opposite ways to interpret them. Mm. And that is something that I try my best in my stewardship profession to remember, you know, let's say I have a particular bent towards climate emergency and I, I try to understand the flip side. And so that's, that's kind of my reality of, of taking out of my day-to-day -day context, reading a great book about really important topics. It could be immigration, it could be whatever, and then just try to think of it from both sides. So that was, that's the book, uh, book of the month for me. 
No, I think I think that's great. I, I I wholeheartedly agree with that last. I think that's a great sentiment to end on. That you know, whatever you're reading, try to read. We'll try to read first of all. We're in this day and age, it might be harder, but to do that. But try to read and expose yourself to ideas that aren't yours or new to you. And it's a great way to learn about the world that whether it's a novel from 200 years ago or the experience of someone that that is on the other half of the world that you don't know what their experience is and you're not always going to agree or disagree with those folks, but it's a better way to just have a, a more well-rounded uh, view of the world uh, to, to, to get your mind out of its comfort zone. Exactly. Uh, I think is a great, is a great thing. All right. Well, thanks, John. Uh, thanks for putting up with me. I hope this is educational for our, for our listeners. Probably see you at, at some conferences now that those are happening again. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Matt. Really appreciate it. Not a problem. Mm-hmm.